0: Hello, and welcome back to the Ms. Amanda Chen Show. We're now in season two of the 100 Mass Men series, where I anonymously interview different men from all walks of life about gender roles, expectations from society, and how that affects our self-worth. This month, we're taking a special focus on men's mental health, sponsored by Tether, the world's first online peer-to-peer support community connecting men for open and honest conversations about life. And this week, I'm challenging the judgment we receive from ourselves and others when we don't follow the path that's been set for us. Masked man number 40 is the childless man. It's interesting how little we talk about a man's role in bearing children. I found a man who was involuntarily childless, who was jealous of other fathers in his peer group. And that comes at such a different space than with women trying to juggle motherhood and a career. I learned so much in this conversation from a man from a completely different generation, and I wonder how much history will repeat itself. I hope you enjoy the show.
1: I was born in Old Trafford, Manchester, which is, I guess, equivalent to something in the States in the, uh, in the Rust Belt, as it's called now. It was a heavily industrialized city with heavy industries. And uh, Old Trafford was very close to the working area, which is called Trafford Park. And it was a a vast area. I'm one of eight children and the seventh youngest of eight. And I was born in 1960. And when I say it's close, it's within uh, a mile between Trafford Park and Old Trafford where uh, I, I was born. And there was lots of pollution around then and uh, I struggled breathing to breathe when I was uh, born which isn't uncommon in those working class conditions and I was very lucky in that we had the NHS that kicked up 10 years previously and so the midwife had oxygen in her car so two things she had a car and she had some oxygen so she revived me but that left me with a hearing issue so I've got a 30 percent hearing Loss, which means my English isn't great. It's a bit of a second language to me, so I might hesitate or stumble or just not say words correctly, and that's why. So uh, that's I was born into that working class work ethic of you know you you work hard and you'll get your reward just through working hard. My dad was a uh, worked in the print industry and in the newspaper industry, so he worked nights, and so we never really saw much of him. Apart from, we had to be very careful not to be too noisy, which wasn't that easy. in a house full of eight kids um, during the day, and particularly in the in the mornings. And then he'd cause he'd finish his shift at four or five o'clock in the morning, and go home at six, and then want to have his sleep. So we had to be very careful around him.
0: What was your um, relationship like with your father and? were your siblings more or less close to your father or were you closer to your siblings?
1: I think uh, because it was a cascade of care from the older siblings down. So, so it was a bit of a frenetic childhood. Uh, although we fell in and out of relationships with each <laughs> other in the quality of it, as you do as a child. Uh, I think uh, we, we tend to get over them quickly. Because in that situation, there was no other option, really. So I think I g- close connections with my siblings and with my mother. Distant one with my dad, physically distant. I think also he was forced into the role of being dispenser of justice. And so he was always used as a threat. You know, if your dad finds out about this, then you're for it. Although I don't think we were ever physically hit. the The threat was there that was a a sanction a threatened sanction so not a great relationship with my dad in the early years a bit of a stranger really I, mm-hmm. later on we we did actually have quite a bust up when I was in my late teens because he thought it was an idiot and there mm-hmm. might be some justification in that at that time so i left home under a cloud then came back and we sort of patched things up and then when he was in his late 50s he got late onset diabetes or type 2 diabetes it's called then, which is not uncommon for people who do uh, a lot of shift work particularly on social hours shift work and he was overweight and the print industry was a heavy alcohol socialized industry so there's those things to it But when he was approaching the end of his life with his, uh, he had a kidney problem related to the diabetes, myself and uh, my sister and my mum did a lot of the care for him at home. So we got, I think, a better relationship there. But at that point, he was a grandfather as well. And he was quite much more available to the grandchildren. Um, there was often a comment in the family, we didn't know he could be like that. And I think that was an opportunity for him to be nurturing, which he didn't have when we were growing up. I think possibly because he was filling that role of being a provider and so didn't have the opportunity that he had just before he uh, passed on. So that was my relationship with uh, my father. I think you know, in mean, our family, because we've got four boys and four girls, all the boys had an issue or issues with uh, with dad, but the girls had some issues, but not to the same extent. He he preferred the the girls to the boys.
0: Interesting. I think that's mm. funny. It's always like you know, daddy's girl, and you know she can do no wrong whereas I think there was a different type of expectation from a Mm. father-to-son perspective of either growing up to be like dad or better than dad or in comparison Mm. to dad. Like, I think there was always some kind of measuring up. Was that something that happened along your
1: brothers? No, I think think he thought we were all idiots. (laughs) (laughs) For the brothers. But he wanted the best for the the girls. Uh, He definitely... You know, would say to them, and my mothers, so, you know, you can do anything now. So this is in the 70s and 80s when they were in their late teens and 20s. You know, you can do well, particularly when they're going to school. Sorry, I'm leaping about in time here. Actually, you know, you have got opportunities now to go to university to get a career. You know, it's things are opening up, and there was definitely a, a push. I I think more encouragement for the girls than there was uh for the boys. Yeah. So
0: interesting. What was the expectation for the boys? Was it just like you guys had to get to work as soon as possible and start a family? Uh, versus the women it, kind of had opportunities for education.
1: Yeah, I think it was really I find it interesting because the next brother up from me is about five years older than me. And he's very uh, often said, you know, we were given no encouragement either at home through my father sort of encouraged to be educated but not to really continue it on so to to be able to read and write and do arithmetic you know, the basic things was very important but my sibling just one up from me says uh, he was never encouraged and it was just get a job where i was pressurised actually in my teen early teenagers to do well at school and i think the difference was at the equivalent age of being 13, 14, my elder brother, we were in a boom town. So there were lots of jobs, late 60s, very early 70s. You know, you could leave a job and just walk into another. That's how it seems, particularly in a, a city where there was that big industrial complex. So there were lots of job opportunities and you didn't have to be particularly skilled. Better if you were, but there was lots of uh, unskilled jobs around and then in the 1973 there was an oil crisis and so there was a slump and I think then there was a pressure then to do better at school because the opportunities were weren't as a, as much available so I think that's the difference between me and the brother who's five years older than me so just in that little time frame there was a twist in the economics and that changed my parents attitude so I was under a lot of pressure to do well at school and I wasn't very good (laughs) at school the other thing is they always did you must get a a steady job with uh, like the civil service or in a bank uh, a safe job whereas my brother didn't get that so because they'd experienced their parents had experienced times when there were there were no pensions and no safe jobs weren't that great. And obviously there was a change in time. So that kicked in that narrative for for them. And the expectation was, and I remember them saying, you know, when you're a parent, you're going to have to take these tough decisions as well and say no. And that's what we're going to have to do. And that's the sort of embeddedness of the expectation that I was going to be a parent. This was just going to happen. And so there was that arc of life where the expectation was you'd leave school, get a job, find a, a partner, get married and have children. And that was my expectation. And actually it was quite a driver, I think, in my late teenage years and early 20s, particularly as my peers seemed to be uh, partnering up very easily and settling down. And I wasn't. I was quite shy and not socially bubbly. I was okay, but yeah, I didn't like to put on a display or anything. And I think that's because in my upbringing, because I've got six siblings above me, uh, if I sort of went into a display, it was quite an ambiguous, ambivalent situation because either the chances are I'd be mocked. I might be celebrated for a little while, But then there'd be some tension, well, well, he's getting a bit too much attention. And because they're older, they have more devices to stop you getting that attention. So I think that was very much a driver for me. And that, that fear of humiliation, I think was, I think of being rejected. So my preference is to step into the spotlight and then step out. I'm happier in the shadows but I I know to be in the spotlight is something that I'd I like, but not for too long.
0: Okay. How was, how was that seen like in the UK? I'm just curious in terms of what was chivalrous back then in terms of how you would approach women to even eventually date and, you know, make a family mm-hmm. with how was that process for you being already known that you are a little bit more shy, knowing that you are at the bottom of, you know, you're the youngest um, one in the family and there's all of these additional pressures now there's an expectation not only to get a job and to have this family but one that is a safe job that is secure and requires some level of additional education right so you're adding all these additional layers and then how does that prepare you for choosing the right partner
1: well uh, I think yeah there are those layers around there. and there's that layer of moving from the the family circle out into the social circle and and navigating and negotiating that and learning how to be in a a social arena that's fairly new so i think for us that the pub was a big thing for for my peers and for the working class lads uh, at secondary school which is between 11 and 16 years of age as you Sort of getting older is, had you been in a pub, had you got a drink illegally, you shouldn't have been in there. And I think that's very much to do with the working class way of being, though, of socialising for men would be to go to the pub. Everybody smoked back then as well. I I didn't, but uh, I was quite strange for that. But the main social areas would be club, pubs and clubs in in the city centre. And I was a a bit of a rocker. I liked the crowd I sort of fell in with were into motorcycles. So I got into uh, motorcycles and there was only one rock club in the city. So I used to go there with them. So to negotiate having to go up and talk to a woman with the aim of getting to know her better was quite frightening. But it was sort of expected that the, the man would approach the woman and she would then have the power to choose or not. And I think the, the scripts are very limited that you could uh, you could use, which was really kind of buy you a drink and then try and negotiate around that. And that was a big thing uh, for me to do. And I would go up with uh, the expectation of getting rejected.
0: OK, so as you kind of grew older and more mature and you started to have relationships with women. And I just want to get into the concept of, you know, involuntarily childlessness. And Mm -hmm. when, how, how was that process with you? Would you have all these conversations with your partner about having children about, was that an expectation that was just already part of the itinerary or did you actually communicate together about what the plan would be for when you do have children? And then were there points of tension when that wasn't happening in that relationship?
1: Sure. I I met my wife who was a few years younger than me. I think she was four years younger than me when I was 22. So she'd be 18. And we got together very quickly and got engaged very quickly within three months. And then we saved up for a deposit for a house and we bought furniture, which we stored at her parents' house. And when I was 26, she'd be 22, we got married. We bought the house when I was 24. So we yeah, two and a half years, three years, we'd bought a place and we're living together. And then we got married. And yeah, the, ex- the thing we were going to do, do was actually following that plan of getting together, uh, getting a place and sort of getting settled down in that. She was working in a bank, actually. She was a bank teller. I was working as a technician in a university. So a very safe job uh, from that angle. And she was in a safe job. And yes, we were going to settle down, get the house as we wanted it, and then have kids. And I think we did talk about that, but not in a deep, deep way. Just this is what's going to happen. Are you up? You know, do you agree with that? And then as we were progressing through the marriage, she changed jobs. I was 28, so she'd be 24, something like that. And she moved in with a younger crowd. So although there's not that much age different. It was like a different peer group to my peer group who were then settling down, starting to have babies. And I definitely felt a little bit off track that I was behind in the timeline. And so we did start trying for having a baby, I think for about a, a year, and it didn't happen. She changed job. She started going out more. And I think she saw a different social side because obviously looking back she'd had gone from being outgoing to being married and then the world had changed socially there was a little bit of a boom financially and she saw a different side of life with people who weren't boring like I I was because that's my thing was to become a parent although I was quite worried about my what my role was so I think there were A couple of times when we thought she was pregnant and she wasn't and I thought actually am I going to be a good dad can I be a provider how am I going to do that because I'm not particularly ambitious the job's safe but you really have to wait for somebody to die before you can get the next promotion or something like that and I I wasn't confident in my educational abilities either so it was uh excitement when that was happening, but also fear of I won't match the expectations of being a father, of being a provider.
0: I think that's really interesting that there was an expectation that your parents gave you for finding a safe job, for finding a nice wife, which you, you got. But then there's this additional expectation now of being a confident man, of going up the food chain, of having more access to more opportunities and more power. Why do you think that contributed to whether or not you were going to be a good dad?
1: I, I think at that time I was, my idea of uh, a good dad, the initial thing was a provider. And I think at that time, it'll be in the mid, eights, mid to late 80s, the idea of um, a hands-on dad, uh, an involved father was only just starting to come through. And I think part my fear actually, as you bring it up is would I be a better dad than my dad I mean the aim would be to be better and to be available but actually I, was, I think I was also aware I didn't have the skills I hadn't experienced babies yeah so that's a really interesting point you've you've raised there yeah I think it's
0: interesting with there there's a, a level of confidence that you want to feel when you're actually going to be ready for fatherhood and I think yeah. now in the modern world when we're talking to kind of 30-ish men that are thinking of of having children or even um, just women in my space, you know, that might think like, you know what, I don't even want a, a, a partner. I just want, I would just want to have a child. I just want to experience motherhood. I'm mm-hmm. not sure if I even want to experience marriage or, you know, that kind of partnership. So right. There is that confidence of like, okay, hey, well, I have my finances in order, I have everything to put together. I just want to now experience what motherhood is like, or what mm. you know, having children is like. And that's why there's a surge in adoption and mm. you know, just uh, different types of modern families. So, how much do you think out of your research with men is confidence at play in terms of feeling like you're able to even? Be a father figure, and and what's required in that more so than you know, even if you have the physical ability or the financial ability to Mm. to operate that.
1: I I think confidence is a really interesting word, and I think there there is a a tension there between wanting and and that may be a physical urge and yearning, and as well as a social expectation of what that you you might buy into. How you how you're going to be. But also, where do you go to find out? And one of the things from my uh, research study I did with uh, Sarah Earl was looking at men's influence on infant feeding. And the men were all saying, there was nothing there for us to draw on from the, from the, from the medical side of things. So in the, the training pre-birth, the classes, when it came to uh, breastfeeding, the men were sent out. So they didn't know so there's an exclusion now, there And there's, I think there's something around about being excluded. And men used to be excluded from the, the birthing process.
0: Do you think that that's helpful now that men are just more involved in, in the entire infancy stage of things? You know, there's even like exercises that partners would do together, you know, as they prepare for childbirth.
1: Sure. I think that is that that's got to be good. That you uh, share an experience, you gain knowledge, you know. It's better to have some knowledge than none. So, yeah, I think that is uh, it is really good. And there's a, a thing now about dads putting babies on their, ch- their bare chests and not skin to skin. It, it's with uh, mothers as well when baby is born, but then also for, with fathers. And there's, I think, evidence to prove that's beneficial to both. They feel the heartbeat, they, they feel the, the sense of smells, and that, that bonding, so the bonding, physical bonding, bonds throughout life. So, yeah, I think that's really interesting. I think education is so important about fertility and uh, rather than sex, sex and fertility. I, mm-hmm. So, people know, for example, how vulnerable uh, men are uh, with, from the environment affecting their, their fertility.
0: How does environment contribute to fertility levels among men? Uh, uh,
1: directly, because sperm's in constant production. There's more and more evidence that chemical influence—you know, the uh, plastic wrapping on the on foods transfers into the food, transfers into the system, and affects fertility. Anything really that gets absorbed into the body—alcohol, drugs, tobacco—will affect your sperm. Can affect your sperm.
0: Interesting, because I, I didn't really know it could be that many things. You know, I understood um, if you put bad things in your body, then obviously you'd be affected. But I didn't think that it would affect so much on someone's fertility.
1: Physically. I heard uh, so, yeah, at a conference, uh, uh, an embryologist was talking about analyzing sperm. And uh, she said, I think I can see in sperm if somebody's been smoking in the quality of the sperm. And it's one of the first things, really, uh, when uh, men and women go to fertility treatment is okay, you know, stop the drink, stop smoking, exercise. For men, uh, wear loose underwear because the testes are, you know, hang outside the body for a reason. And that's how they're a couple of degrees cooler. So don't take hot baths. Be very careful uh, about that. So, pre. COVID in the UK every summer in the past few years, there would be because of climate change a school where the boys had turned up in, I say boys, young men so 15 to 18 year olds in skirts because the dress code made them wear trousers and they say, you know, why can't we wear skirts? And although it was about the dress code, they were absolutely right that actually they should be keeping their testes cool because the the very fine tubes in the testes can fuse with heat by a few degrees. In fact, one of the men that I interviewed, that is what happened to him. The tubes are fused and he was infertile, but he didn't know. And that happened in his teenage years, and he didn't know until his forties. That's what's happened.
0: That's crazy. I think it's interesting because I mean, now that we are in the age of COVID, and I think you know, there's an extra lens on everyone's personal health and Mm. just checking in on everything. Whereas I think sexual health wasn't something that people wanted to disclose in partnerships, Mm. unless it was, you know, something very serious in the status of your relationship. Mm. So I don't know, do you think that men didn't really get checked for their sexual health for a while? And that's why they wouldn't know if they were infertile until it was too late.
1: I guess you could say, and uh, people, women are defined by motherhood. There was a big stream in the 70s from the feminists, and it still is central to feminism's the reproductive issues. But for men, there's an assumption that a you're fertile. Well, a I think there's an assumption for men and women that you're fertile and that you're gonna that's not going to be a problem. And generally, people don't find out there's a problem unless I know you go for treatment for something else and maybe the medication you're taking is going to affect your fertility, then it's raised for you. Generally, people just assume they're going to be fertile. And um, for men in particular, I think there's a societal narrative of not wanting to know men are vulnerable and vulnerable emotionally, physically, and uh, with their fertility. There's a dismissal of men being seen as vulnerable. Uh, there's a book by Cynthia Daniels, who's a political scientist in the States, and and this is what she raises that society doesn't want to see men as being vulnerable, and so when it's sort of presented with evidence, so she did looked at the uh, the Veterans Association and Agent Orange and the effects of that and the battle they had to do to get acknowledgement that that toxic chemical affected them physically, mentally, but also their fertility and the the, the children they had that had issues because of that toxicity. And that's really interesting. She said it's a a challenge that we've got to realise that men are vulnerable and acknowledge it rather than dismiss it.
0: I think that's crazy that you said that it was just a natural expectation that everybody is fertile and that there is no discussion on either way and if if for some reason either gender can't have children it's more shameful in the sense of like how come you can't do this this is a natural thing that everyone is born with right i think there's that underlying expectation of us as humans that this is just something that we have that we're born with So that vulnerability of just like, oh, my God, I'm not normal or I can't do my normal function as a human and then having zero support for that. I think from a, a woman's perspective, there has been a lot of at least conversation if you're saying that most of that feminist movement was about reproduction and understanding our role in society and our reproductive rights and having a little bit more power and access to have that conversation and even just a little bit more education around it you know, from just the, the process of childbirth and what is safe and what isn't, and mm. not having any of that information for men, you know, how has that contributed to uh, just a lack of everything, you know, a lack of confidence, you're saying, you know, mm. actual infertility, all of this vulnerability, which could lead to, um, you know, just very unhappy people. Right. What kind of uh, surprising insights did you receive out of that research looking at um, men and sensitive subjects like that?
1: I think the biggest surprise for me is how fascinating men are. And I think that the thing that fascinates me is the limited narratives they have and how they try to operate within those narratives as a, an individual, as a messy, human feeling being with Generally, really confined way of expecting to be. While well, you were talking there about women and uh, the feminist movement, you know, uh, Rousseau said in I think 1976, the motherhood mandate: women are judged by the motherhood mandate. Are, are you a mother? Are you going to become a mother? And what happens if you don't? So there is that massive debate in feminisms: uh, is becoming a mother the most feminist? powerful thing you can do? Is ART, assisted reproductive technology, IVF, etc., liberating because it's giving you control? Or is it the uh, medical gaze and being controlled around your fertility? If you look at masculinities, there's very, very little there about that. And if you look at society generally, like adverts, films and stuff like that, a lot of the women may be uh, really strong characters. How often is there a twist at the end when it's all resolved because she becomes pregnant, she becomes a mum or a grandmum? There's a reinforcement of that uh, maternal nurturing thing. But there's a, an egg in the sperm. Why? There's so much narrative around women and fertility and not fertility and certain sections of the press. If you don't become a mother, you know, actresses get this quite a lot. Why aren't you a mother now? Isn't it a shame you're not a mother or... You're just career-orientated because you're not a mother. So there's a whole range of things. But for men, there's not the same narrative. And one of the things I uh, realise is that there's uh, quite often a social narrative around men can become fathers any time. And that's what they're told. Well, you can become a father anytime, time. From puberty to death, you're fertile, which is technically true. But actually, sperm starts to decline in uh, efficiency around about the age of thirty-five. So it sort of marries in there with uh, women's biological clock. So there's a there's a, a biological clock for men. It's just different for than the, the woman's one. So the sperm starts to decline. But also, there's a social clock, and the social clock for men, and there was a an Australian woman researcher called Leslie Connold, who found that for, for women, there was a social clock that was centred around their peers and their parents. When are you going to become a mom? Isn't it about time you're going to be? And for, for women, the social clock was as important as a biological clock. And I think it's similar for men, but different. The social clock for men was they don't want to be old fathers. So at those milestone events of, going taking your daughter or your son to the prom or going to the game or a graduation those they didn't want to be seen as a frail older man so there's a social clock as well as a biological clock clock that goes for men, men and women and there's also a societal clock most societies if you're pregnant or become a parent too young that's frowned upon and also too late or that's changing because of ART but generally between 20 and 40 are the acceptable ages to become a parent so if you're out of social time depending on the culture you're in that can be a negative as well and in the UK I found there was only 2% of fathers age, age 50 or above so there's very few men who become fathers later on in life. So it's a bit of a myth that you can become a father later on in life. You can, and nowadays with technology, you can become a mother later on in life if you have money or the desire to to do that through technology. But if we take technology out of the picture, then that's really interesting. I think what's really interesting, men I spoke to, they all had said something Similar, And the thing they said was, there's something missing. And I think that's such a key phrase, because there is something missing. There's something missing in their hearts. In They're aware of a loss of a gap inside, uh, a gap in a role, in intimate relationships. But there's also, there's a social gap as well, and a societal gap of men who aren't fathers. What roles do they fit? because they're sort of dismissed.
0: I think that's interesting, because I think at least now in this century, there is a desire to be like the cool aunt or the cool uncle that never has kids, that travels a lot and lives a single life forever mm. to keep that legacy going on as if you're, if you're young forever. And that, you know, you can always just settle down eventually, but that's ultimately your decision and celebrating that freedom of independence. But then when you say that there's, rarely any older fathers so actually that concept really isn't true Mm. and then now you're also saying that there are older men that kind of reflect on on the fact that they didn't have any children Mm. so was it really worthwhile having that whole journey of you know being the cool uncle um whatever those social implications were so what experiences have you had on the understanding of of men becoming jealous of fathers and fatherhood, and that experience that might have left them feeling like they're they're lacking something in their lives.
1: Okay, uh, just very quickly before I move on to jealousy, because I was that jealous man. There's so many things that influence why and if you reproduce. So your class, your education level, the economics economics is a big thing in stopping people reproducing and fulfilling their fertility ideals and these things change over time so it's really fluid changeable aspect of life and sometimes it is who you choose as a partner if your partner doesn't want to become a parent then what are you going to do do you choose love over reproduction but yes you asked about jealousy so in my mid-30s I was in work my peer group We were having, uh, well, the partners were having babies willy-nilly, and I wasn't. I felt off track then. And my colleague I I used to have coffee breaks with and uh, lunchtime and socialize. We were good friends. His wife became pregnant. I was so jealous of him, so, so jealous that I couldn't walk past his office. I used to go down the other end of the building, around the building a different way. I didn't want to face it because my jealousy of him was a raw and powerful. And I, at that time, I, I couldn't uh, actually vocalise it. It was just such a big feeling that if I'd vocalized it, I vocalised it, it would have just been a torrent of, I'm not sure what a torrent of what, but it would be a massive release of, well, anger and jealousy, I guess. And uh, we did talk about it, actually, which is strange for British fellas. He said, there's something wrong between us. Uh, And I said, you know, uh, you've got the life I should have. And uh, he said, well, I can't do anything about that, which is brutal, but true. He couldn't. I divorced my first wife, or we divorced when in 29, 30. And then there was a few years because of finances where I didn't go out. And about 33, I got involved with uh, another woman. It was it was great. It was loving. And at one point, she said to me, uh, "You know, I want to have your babies." And I felt so uh, made up about that. And there was a change in me because well, she was intelligent. She was going to uh, have a great career and earn a lot more money. That actually, I could be a house husband. That's that's or a stay at home dad, and that would be fine. I I could do that. And there was a change in me and maybe a change in the social narrative as well, because house husbands, stay-at-home dads was, were coming more into the, into the frame. From when I was married, and my thing would be, how am I going to be a provider? So in my mid-30s, it's actually, well, we'll work it out. And yeah, so it's a much more relaxed attitude. And actually, my concern was more for her, uh, if that's what she she wanted, uh but then we split up, so um we never found out <laughs> so yeah, so the jealousy yeah. thing was involved in that as well, because my peers are having babies. I sort of the door opens a little bit, or the cookie shop I can see the cookies there, and there's an a the chance of it happening, and then it's not but all around me, people are having their cookies, if that's a good metaphor.
0: Yeah, that's so crazy how just because everyone else is doing it, and you haven't, you know, to develop this level of jealousy that someone else is having your life, yeah. where, you know, you can, you always get the, the power to choose your own life and how you have it, right? And it's just yeah, such a crazy thought. Do you think that I mean, I still think that that actually holds true even now, you know, whether it's to be childless or to have children, whatever the majority of things that you see, whether that's on Instagram or whatever, you're going to want to aspire for that life and then feel like it's unfair if you don't get exactly the same thing. And then I think that reflects on your own self-worth on whether or not you're even living a good enough life, right?
1: an authentic life yeah it's it's interesting isn't it the the material aspects of life I and mean, we're surrounded like those tempting offers through instagram and all sorts of media and and yet the not being a dad it's it's not like me not having uh, a really great car or a really great suit it, it's different from uh, the material things. And that might be because I'm older now, because I'm 61, maybe if I was in my thirties or my twenties, it would be different that I would be really wanting those things. It could be a generational thing because when I was in the eighties, I was 20, 1980, so obviously 13, 1990 in that period, there weren't as many material things as there are now. There were no mobile phones, for example. Only a few computers, only domestic computers are only just sort of coming out from in that period. So we've come on leaps and bounds in technology, but also I think we've come on leaps and bounds of people being targeted by commerce to sell things to, whether you want them or not.
0: I think that's interesting that you didn't really have a lot of desire for material things because that wasn't really a thing for you growing up as a, I mean, it could be a measure of status, but it wasn't really a measure of a good quality of life. It was more the experiences of having children. But now in this society where it is a very consumerist materialistic world where we can distract ourselves by saying, oh, we don't need children. We don't need that experience because we have these other material goals that we can aspire to. But out of your experience now, and I think you're mentioning that, you know, one of the greatest fears of growing old, you know, without children and that fear, do you anticipate that when when this generation gets older and all those material aspects dissolve, are they also going to be feeling that that something was robbed from them, that feeling of lack? And no. how would you advise us to kind of reconsider that so that we can maybe at least put those goals into living a a quality life that we actually want to have versus distracting ourselves with whatever is available to us
1: yeah well that's a a really deep uh question how how is that going to be managed when in front of you is placed so much that is nice and in the minute, and maybe as the generations all age, that will change. The manufacturers and the commerce will actually say, "Well, uh, selling tamagotchis isn't going to work for this generation," and that dates me immediately because some <laughs> people are thinking, "What are tamagotchis?" <laughs> um, but there'll be an adaption, I think. For that so a i think commerce and industry will uh follow the curve in fact they don't follow the for they try and lead the curve so they're trying to try predict that but yeah for older people there's a couple of different narratives going on one is successful aging where you're fit and healthy and okay you're getting old but you know you're, you're okay and there's almost a trying to keep young element for older people now how to be young you can't be frail because to be frail is, I mean, you're you're dependent, you're vulnerable again, and how are you going to get looked after? But that's part of ageing. Things start to to fail and you get your body wears out and maybe your mind wears out as well. So what are you going to do if you're childless? Who's going to look after you? So one of the guys I spoke to, his friend's, friend, no his friend, let's cut out or his daughter came to see him and she said, You don't look well. And she was a, a nurse, said, let's get you to hospital. And then the next week he was having triple bypass surgery. So the guy I spoke to said, who's gonna do that? Who's gonna know that I'm not looking well? Who's gonna call on me and take me to hospital? Who's gonna push me? Who's gonna catch me when I fall in later life? So I think there's something around childlessness. And how you manage your social and intimate relationship network. And that may be actually you might have to buy it in. So you may have to get some insurance or or develop something around that or develop a community, or there's got a change in community. To say, actually, we've got a person here who's a bit vulnerable and we just gotta keep an eye on them. And if something happens, this is gonna this is how we're gonna manage it.
0: Yeah, I think there's on top of that, just a layer of loneliness, right? Like yeah. if you don't have your top five people on your phone on, on auto dial that you would call for instances mm-hmm. like that, then I think that contributes to how you feel about yourself and where you sit in in society, right?
1: Mm-hmm. And they, it tends to be that women have larger social networks than men and that they they last for longer, so... For men, quite often, in the past, because it might be slight, it might be different in the future. Men left work and retired, and their social network would shrink dramatically because a lot of their social networks and connections were through work. And quite often, <clears throat> if they had a uh, were married with a partner, their social network then became their partner's social network. They only had a small one of those, but they then started to be. Uh, influenced by their their partner social network but if you don't have a partner what happens then Or your partner dies or he leaves what's going to happen then so there's I think for for men in particular there's an issue about growing older and how to manage a social network I mean some men obviously are very gregarious they have large social networks maybe they play golf or do some activity where they're they're drawn in but quite a lot of men don't do do that and struggle I think to to be social once they're not doing a job
0: yeah I guess because it's like well what do you talk about if you're not working right and I I, you know when you said that it just made me realize a lot about my own parents like my mom's got a a huge social network both of them are retired but my father doesn't talk to anyone since he was since he stopped working since he retired and all of his friends are just the other partners of Mm. my mom's friends and yeah. by default from that, he can't really connect with them in the same way because he has to kind of accompany them whenever my mom's social gatherings occur. And he can't mm. just like call them for, for no reason at any point in time. You know, the relationship dynamic is very different. Mm. And I think that can contribute a lot to how how settled you feel in life. You know, like that, that security net of people that you can turn to and be vulnerable with and feel safe with
1: yeah without actually involving a professional but you know I'm feeling this I can contact Joe and he she knows about this or they're a good friend they seem to what if that Joe's not there I pick Joe because that can go to men or women can't it that name I think um (laughs) Yeah. yeah yeah so It it is, uh, really, and again, it goes down to how men are socialized from a a young age to be outside themselves. You know, uh, if you look on uh, Facebook or any social networking arena, really interesting to find out what age boys are called my little man, my little soldier. And sometimes they're still in nappies or crawling, my little man. And what does that mean? you won't get an equivalent, my little woman for girls might be my little princess. And uh, certainly women I've spoken to said, yeah, I'm still called my little princess now, and I'm 75, but (laughs) there's something there and socializing boys to be goal orientated outside themselves. So work, you know, if you look at male sports, it's usually chasing even team sports, it's chasing something, there's a goal to score, there's an achievement outside themselves, and is the equivalent drive for women to be judged by their internal existentialism. So men exist, the virility is existential outside them, and women's existential virility is inside them, and that's reflected in how they're portrayed in society and how those arcs of ways of being across the life course are developed
0: I think that's wild when you said that because from from women and you know women's rights movements and and their desire for change and for power it's all about that internal drive of representing something about themselves Mm. whereas if you think of men you're right they're 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 trying to achieve something outside of themselves as a form of status, as a form of power, as a way to accomplish something. But then, what what is the ultimate goal after that? Because is it not to get get the girl to as like the end of the package deal?
1: That's so. It's really interesting because that's it. It's you know, leave school, get a job. Uh, if you're middle class, go to university, get a job, find a partner, have a family, and it ends there. But now there's, I guess because of demographic change become a a grandparent so there's that role so uh when i said about leslie connold you know the parents are maybe saying when are we going to hear the patter of tiny feet and then 20 years 30 years down the line when are we going to hear the patter tiny feet again because when are your children going to have children
0: yeah it just kind of continues the yeah, that's
1: right. sort of one of the things uh, the, the guys I spoke to notice. So you're with your, your peer group, and then they start to reproduce, and they pull away they, because kids occupy so much time and space, and so their connection drops off. And then once their kids become adults and they form lives of their own, those connections come back, and then they're separated again because grandchildren come in. To it And one of the guys I, I spoke to the guy actually who found out he was infertile in his forties, his his wife's niece became pregnant and she didn't have a dad and so he said can I be surrogate grandfather? So he it was his idea and he put it to them when she was pregnant. They went yes okay. So he became surrogate grandfather. So baby's born and it's six hours later. I'm holding this little thing in my arms. And I just know I give everything to this thing. And that's when I became aware of the bond between a parent and a child and had an understanding that although I wanted to be a dad and didn't become one, one thing I didn't realize was that connectiveness between a child and a parent or a grandparent. And he said, you know, we're talking about future life. And he said, well, if I can last another 15 years, then my granddaughter will be 18. And I can see her through to that first stage of adulthood. And that'd be something to achieve, wouldn't it? Yeah. So there's a an existential legacy, a genetic legacy, but there's also that experiential legacy and relationship.
0: Yeah, I think it's interesting because, you know, we strive so much to... Prove ourselves in a certain way to people to our elders maybe to gain that respect then we try to gain that respect through peer-to-peer relationships through romantic relationships people that are Mm. the same level as us but then we don't really pay attention to that relationship with young people and creating a relationship with someone that is continually growing
1: Mm.
0: you know and then how much you can learn by being the elder and Mm. there hasn't been much of a lens on that of you know the, the grand, grandfather to grandchildren story. That's a special relationship, you know, with grandparents because that skips that generation, right? It's very different from mom and dad.
1: Sure. And uh, there's something about maybe for the older person, reliving another youth and maybe a better youth. So whereas I would say, you know, um, quite a lot of people, men and uh, women say, I want to be a better parent than my parent, that maybe in grandparenthood, you can relive a better youth, a, a, a better childhood. You can rediscover things. Yeah. Maybe. I've just yeah. thought of that. So
0: exactly. That, that's a, a new way to, to live life vicariously through someone else. You know what I mean? And I think we've always glamorized elders, you know, or, or peers yeah. or people, you know, above us versus yeah. those that are just starting, you know, children yeah. and kids that have this abundance of potential. That we don't really tap into because we're too focused on protecting them, you know, mm. or educating them or something else or like inputting our knowledge rather than them giving us knowledge.
1: Mm. And there is something I, I'm just going to go to my work experience when I was uh, training younger people that actually you, you can see the potential. And when your relationship with them, what the skills you pass on and you see them take off, it's, it's something uh, really moving that they've come in and you've helped develop them and fulfill to bloom if that happens. But yeah, there is something around that.
0: Yeah, absolutely. I want to wrap up with three questions for you. The Mm -hmm. first question is we have been talking about just the expectation of what it means to be a man, the package deal that you were sent. And if you don't get it and you measure yourself up to everyone else and you think like, Oh, this is unfair. Like my life, Mm -hmm should be like your life. What, oh. <laughs> what is, how do you self-identify with what a good life means to you? And how do you cultivate self-worth in making sure that you're okay and you are pursuing the life that you you truly want to live?
1: I, I think you, there's a realization of uh, ideals are sort of fake. So the ideal way of 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 the of that package deal if you got there where then you speak to parents it's not what they thought it's part of what it is but it's not everything and that okay I didn't get that but I've got other stuff and I've been able to do this research I didn't think I'd ever do a PhD I didn't you know through my uh master's uh and my PhD the lack of confidence that I was brought up with was still there but there was something around being able to have the time to do it that got me through it. So I may be not that, but I can be something else and I can choose that. And that might be not as easy as following the easy steps that maybe not easy, but f- following uh, the laid down path that others are treading. I may be on the, the verge and maybe a bit more difficult, but it can be more interesting. As well to make your own path and de- decide, I'm going to try this out. I'm going to try that out. So there's something around making another package for you, for yourself and how you do that. I'm sorry, I've forgotten what the second part of your question was. I got wrapped up in myself.
0: <laughs> I mean, that's exactly what, the, I mean, that's an amazing answer, you know, about getting off the path and making your own path, you know, getting off the ideal version of that. I think what I wanted to know is what does self-worth mean to you?
1: Self-worth. Oh god, just with the simple questions. Uh, <laughs> self-worth. Well, I think it's in in the every in the everyday. Okay, there's a a psychoanalyst, psychologist called uh, Winnicott. I can't remember his first John Winnicott, I think, back in the 50s. And he was doing a lot on parenthood, actually, and motherhood. What he came up against is all these women trying to be the ideal mother. And he said, You don't have to be the ideal mother, you just got to be good enough. And I think there's something that I've just got to be good enough. If I have an ethical stance, I try and fill that. But i just got to appreciate that it's a fluid, changing world. And I think that's part of the thing about the package deal. It doesn't really appreciate how much change and random things can come in. So the self-worth is trying to be good, good enough, I try not to do any harm. And for me, self-worth is just so little narrative around men and their feelings and particularly about not being a dad that to put something out there and for people to come back and say you know I hadn't thought of that quite often I haven't thought that but it's obvious isn't it that men would feel this Um, and sometimes men get in touch and say uh, you know thanks for doing this because and a lot of the men I spoke to said I've never spoken to anyone about this I've never told anyone and I think if you can If I can put something there that men can come to and say, I wouldn't say that they're going to say, that's like me. They're going to say, "Mm, I see that, but I'm different like this. That's good. That's self-worth because they're, rather than just floating away, they're hitting something and saying, okay, I'm a bit like that, but I'm mainly like this. And they may not have realized that self-reflection. So self-worth is about that self-reflective thing I may not be that, but I can be this. And if I just try and do good, that's the best I can be, I think.
0: Yeah, that is is so humbling, you know, to not strive for something that isn't yours. You know, I I believe that everything that is yours will come to you. Mm. And forcing it is really what makes your life so miserable, right? My next question to you is what is the biggest challenge in communicating male vulnerability to men, to women, in yeah. your experience?
1: To women, well, the worst experience for me when I was at a conference and I'd given my talk and uh, the questions at the end and one of the women there who was speaking next made it very clear she didn't believe anything I said. And then halfway through her talk, I was the only man in the room and that's quite often uh, the case. Says a lot because uh, it's about reproduction, and I'm the only man there. Uh, I talk about men's experience, and I'm at the front in the corner because that's where I place myself so that the women know where I am. And uh, she turned and said, The pedophile in the corner, and that was really upsetting. But it also says a lot about how men are viewed as a threat when they don't conform. And so I think when it comes to some women, uh, some women, are absolute, I've had so many different people's fertility history, because once they say, I'm interested in men and male childlessness, a disease that I answer, well, I hadn't thought about that, but yeah, there must be. But then people describe their struggles to become uh, a mother. Quite often, women want to know what men are thinking and feeling and why they don't say those things. It's because they're socialized not to. And then, within academia there's a resistance to acknowledging actually men could be part of the reproductive element and uh, but you know people reproduce uh, biologically but also in social networks and social power networks and systems of power and men are part of that so excluding them it's it's like draining half the lake yeah it may work for a little while but it's at some point you're going to have to acknowledge that even if you've had donor sperm flown in from somewhere else so you've never met the father you know very little about him at some point you're going to have to know something about him because I think with insurance now they're going to know are there any genetic issues with you and you're going to have to know about uh, the father so and that father, that sperm donor, is a person with feelings and thoughts and the, the messiness. So it's really interesting. Some feminists want to embrace the male side of things because then there's an understanding of the interactions between men and women and that power dynamic and how it changes. And others are resistant to it. They There's an ownership around it reproduction and they want to keep the spotlight on women
0: yeah i think that's interesting because it's that's just the power play right on Mm. who who says what and which gender is in charge of of, you know topic a and b so i think that's that's it's really interesting i want to wrap up with my last question for you Out of everything we talked about today, which was a lot of things, are there any topics that jumped out to you that you would like to invite another man to elaborate on further in another episode on the show?
1: Oh, wow. That's a great one. Super questions. Amanda, fantastic. (laughs) Uh, Usually only say super questions. Fantastic. When you know the answers. You know, I'm so interested in other men's experiences. And, and their way of beings and the narratives they occupy. What would I want to hear? I think I'd want to hear about what it's like to be a dad.
0: Okay. Anything in particular in terms of just like a variety of different perspectives on what it's like to be a dad?
1: That that relational bond, but I think also how you manage it, what it's actually like to, to have a baby and then change it and take it to the doctors or or whatever. I think particularly a baby because they're they're so vulnerable, and you've got to try to interpret it, interpret the the baby's needs. And I, I don't think we're many societies really educate. It's sort of it's supposed to be a natural thing. and A lot of women uh, uh, struggle with it. You're supposed to be a, an excellent mother straight away because it's natural. There's another being there, and it's not being natural. And if the you know there's so much around. Uh, not knowing that's frightening so yeah I the, the bond but also actually the mechanics I guess for want of a better word of being a dad
0: yeah I think we get so caught up of just like the relationship or more just like um the role of being a father of you know having all your your shit together rather than yeah. like the actual relationship and the mundane day-to-day management of what that fatherhood process even is a whole yeah. experience right and i think that's generally untapped surprisingly but yet there is so much of that story explained for women you know so yeah i think that's that's interesting i'll definitely take that into account and do uh, a cool. couple interviews on that so thank you so much isn't it a crazy thought to think that you should be having someone else's life what does that say about the expectations we put on ourselves and how we feel about ourselves when we essentially don't follow the common path. If you haven't already, I really hope you guys check out the Tether app if you're looking to find peer support along your journey. The more men I speak to, the more I see how important it is to have a safe space to express your emotions. Make sure to subscribe, and if you'd like to be on the show or know of someone with a unique perspective, slide into my DMs at Miss Amanda Chen on Instagram, and I'll see you next Wednesday with more episodes of The 100 Masked Men.